When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Ikrashi Gufta-Tima, and I welcome you to the New Books Network. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Timothy Buse, who will talk about his brilliant and insightful book, Free Indirect, the Novel in a Post-Fictional Age, published by Columbia University Press in July 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Buse. Uh, before we start talking about the book, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your work. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Ikra. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be uh, on the New Books Network. Um, Well, I'm an English professor at Brown University. I teach courses in uh, contemporary fiction as well as in literary theory and certain questions in philosophy. My research has primarily explored the relation between politics and literature. Um, Undertaking that inquiry in conversation with Marxist theories of ideology and aesthetics, including thinkers and critics associated with the Frankfurt School, such as Georg Lukács, uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, Frederick Jameson, and other 20th century thinkers such as Mikhail Bakhtin and Gilles Deleuze. If there's a uh, distinctiveness to my approach to these questions, I mean, these are very large questions and old ones, um, I think it's that I've been reluctant to rely on existing conceptual or critical vocabularies to understand the politics of literature or literary criticism. Or rather, you know, I've tried to put it, such critical vocabularies into the same analytic frame as the works we read and analyze. So technical terms like postmodernism, realism, abstraction, affect, and, and also everyday terms like perception, shame, irony, cynicism, and the critical practices that make use of them are as much a focus as uh, individual works themselves in my research. Thank you. All right, so um, getting to the book, how did you arrive at this book or how did you start this project? Well, this book, Free and Direct, came about really in the immediate aftermath of my previous book, uh, The Event of Postcolonial Shame, which came out in 2011 and was about postcolonial literature. And what particularly intrigued me when I was doing the research for that project was that it seemed impossible to extract the thematic qualities of postcolonial literature, for example, diasporic experience, the predicament of exile, hybrid identities, even shame, which was the primary focus of the book. Uh, It seemed impossible to, to extract them from the qualities of the modern novel as such. Themes like these were, were all quite central, in fact, to the first work that appeared in the theory of the novel genre, which is uh, Georg Lukacs' The Theory of the Novel, 
from 1914 to 1915. But we had all began to think of these themes, you know, in the critical literature as distinctive qualities of post-colonial experience. So that project ended up engaging as much with the theory of the novel as a field as with uh, debates and conversations in post-colonial studies. And so it felt like a natural shift when completing that book to turn towards the subfield known as the theory of the novel in this latest book. Great, thank you. Now I'm going to ask you a question that we, you know, as grad students um, were asked to think about a lot. So um, how would you introduce your argument in this book as an elevator pitch? And what is the extended version of that argument? Thank you. Uh, It's such a wonderful question to be asked to think about. And as you know, you know, it's really a difficult uh, assignment to uh, to force on uh, people going on the job market to to develop a, an elevator pitch. So I've had, you know, um, uh, so I mean, I, I mean, I, I find it as difficult as anybody, but I'll I'll certainly um, do my best. Um, so my my claim, I think, is that we, or the underlying claim, the claim that sort of sits behind the project, is that is that we live in a world that is more subject centered than ever before. And what that means is that the individual, which is, you know, a choosing, desiring, discerning, experiencing, feeling, storytelling, consuming subject, is a, a sort of sovereign being in, in our society. And in, in a society like that, there is really no thought that is unacceptable, as long as that thought or idea can be understood in terms of a subject of consumption, you know, a subject of interests, as theories of neoliberalism put it. And I've been very influenced by those, um, those theories. And if you think about it, you know, even a figure like Donald Trump intuitively, I think, understands this fact about our world. You know, he claims that the Washington Post attacks him because its owner, Jeff Bezos, ha- had an interest in stopping any potential antitrust legislation that Trump might have uh, that um, that Trump might have opposed upon Bezos's business interests. So, in a sense, even Trump gets away with his outrageous behavior because of his outsized personality. You know, that's just Trump. We say, you know, what do you ex- what do you expect? And you know, this is the world we live in. And in such a world, we could almost say that thought has been disabled and invaded by this, this dimension of interests. And another name for interests, I think, is capitalism. So my book claims that, that uh, contrary to this, um, a thought that has not been disabled and invaded by interests is still possible against everything that we, we really, you know, have come to believe, and that we can find such a thought in the novel, and in particular, uh, the contemporary novel. But in order to identify it, or or indeed to even think about it, we have to give up our attachment to the sovereignty of subjecthood, the very idea that we know what we want, and that we know what we think about things, which is how I define a subject. Perhaps the novel suggests what we think we want is not what we actually want, Perhaps our desires are, are, are something very different from what we are constantly told they are. Perhaps what we think we think is not as obvious as the society we live in would like us to think. So those are sort of some of the questions that I, 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 I'm trying to address, the larger sort of overarching questions I'm trying to address in the, in the book. 
Right. Thank you. That's, That's a very uh, lo- large elevator, probably. Yeah. <laughs> offer that. I mean, it's super interesting. Um, so, you know, when you're making your argument in the book, you mention exemplarity um, in a few sections, and then you have like, you know, a whole chapter on it. What does it mean? And what does it mean for the novel in the post-fictional age? Also, what is different about exemplarity in Seabow's oeuvre? Oh yes, uh, I, I, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. The, the, the second chapter of the book is on um, W. G. Siebold. So, exemplarity is a logical structure that is central to the scholarly tradition that I've been working in for most of my career, which is that of literary criticism. You know, why do we read novels? Well, we read novels, of course, to show us people responding to situations that are comparable to our own: people falling in love, people getting into debt people being accused of crimes they didn't commit, people getting arrested for crimes they did commit. We read novels because the situations and people we find in them are examples of the situations and people we experience in our own lives. This is the basis of realism, the literary tradition that we associate with the 19th century novel and also with mainstream fiction in our own period. Characters are examples, smaller, more contained versions of ourselves, living in worlds that are smaller, more contained versions of our own. So my interest in the German-British writer W.G. Siebold stems from the fact that his works are resistant to being read in terms of exemplarity. And the reason for that is that his characters are evidently not fictions, nor are they, in fact, objects of the narration. Siebold's Siebold's narrators are are always part of his stories. When Siebold tells a story, he's never telling anything other than an event of narration. His stories are stories of encounters, of relations, of events that are always events of language and perception as much as they are actions or or sort of characters coming to a certain kind of realisation. This means that no character or setting or or even a kind of ideological proposition in any novel by Siebold ever stabilizes sufficiently to acquire a fixed meaning. When we read a novel by Siebold, we're we're also reading ourselves reading. It's, It's a really peculiar experience. It's almost as if one is oneself a character in the work one is reading. So, Siebold's writing practice interferes with the organising principles of literary fiction itself, and in particular, the idea that a writer's or a narrator's experiences in the world are being served up for the delectation of a reading public. I'll just give you one kind of small example of that. So, in Siebold's novel Vertigo, there are passages where the narrator tells us about episodes of fervent note-taking as he you know, sits in a bar or, or a restaurant in Italy. And it, it gradually becomes apparent that the notes he is writing are, are nothing other than the very pages we are reading. And versions of this experience happen all the time in Siebold. You know, the, the scene of narration enters the narrative it, it, it itself. So he becomes a kind of um, a, a really sort of crucial case study in, in the way that I unfold the, the overall uh, argument of the book early on. Right. Um, and, you know, in this chapter, when you talk about Seawall, you also compare him and just kind of like exemplarity against Charles Dickens or V.S. Naipaul. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Like, what's the comparison um, in the use of exemplarity in Seawall and these writers? 
Yes, um, well, there's a, a crucial moment in the in the book where um, where uh, well, in, in one of Zebel's works, it's actually in this the aforementioned Vertigo, where he uh, experiences coming. You know, he's he's in a train. He, he the train enters into uh, into um, the station at Milan, and he has already encountered two women on the train, and uh, and he he he's mystified by these two women, and and he asks a question, uh, and and the question goes something like, um, uh, you know, what um, what connection can there be between these two women on the train, and um, and the experience in which I find myself. And that moment when he says, what connection can there be, um, is, it's unstated in the novel, but what I think he's referring to is um, a, a moment in Dickens's great novel, Bleak House, where, where Dickens's narrator asks exactly the same question, you know, what connection could, could there be? And in Dickens, um, the case I'm, I sort of make in the book is that we know what the answer is in Dickens. You know, Dickens's novel has an entire sort of infrastructure of meaning, and that infrastructure of meaning is dependent upon a certain logic of exemplarity. And Dickens's works, we sort of know what he's trying to say in those works. He's trying to, in a way, construct a um, a, a sort of space of um, understanding in which we can relate the um, dimensions of every character we encounter in those novels to a, a, a sort of an organization of society along the lines of exploitation, along the lines of poverty uh, and and wealth, inherited wealth, uh, selfishness of certain characters, um, uh, uh, unethical behavior. In other words, when Dickens writes a novel, we know what that novel is about. And that is simply not the case in, um, in uh, Zabod's uh, uh, narratives, where what the novel is about is very much in, in, in question. The, when you, you ask about um, uh, Naipaul and Kinsir, I'll just talk briefly about Naipaul because Naipaul is really the great Dickensian writer of our of our era. He's deeply invested in and, and influenced by uh, by Dickens. He's he's written about this. He, he understands the images that Dickens uses as images that are translatable, that are in fact universal. When you when a house is described in Dickens. Dickens uses certain language that makes that la- makes makes that description universalizable, even to a young boy reading in Trinidad, which is you know what Naipaul was when he first read Dickens. So um, so Naipaul also inherits this sort of um, infrastructure of exemplarity and makes certain changes to it, but is very much using the Dickensian um, organization of narrative. Um, that again, I think, is broken with by uh, Zabord in in really interesting ways. So, so that's my yeah my broader take on that question. Great, wonderful. All right, so this is a longer question, I think, and I'm sorry for that. Um, you introduced three logics um, in this book: instantiation, postfiction, and disconnection. What are these logics and what do they do for the novel and literary criticism? Thank you, Ikra. Uh, well, I mean, that, yes, these, you, you've gone to the heart of the book, really, because these, these terms are really important in, in the way that I, that I uh, unfold them. So, you know, let me, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll sort of take them one at a time. So, yeah, of first course. Of all, yeah, first of all, instantiation. 
I mean, instantiation is a, is a logic of types and typology. And it has a very long philosophical tradition, in fact, uh, ever since the works of Aristotle. In, you know, in Aristotle's metaphysics, he talks about the distinction between substances, which are by definition particular, and properties or qualities, which are by definition un universal. And properties can appear as the qualities of any number of objects or substances. And, and, and one great example of this is, is colors. So an apple, you know, a substance, an object like an apple can be either green or red. Conversely, the colors green and red may be instantiated by many other objects than apples. For example, a garden shed or, or a table may be either green or, or red. But instantiation becomes more interesting when we conceive of it as, as a general logic of typology and when we subject it to philosophical scepticism. For example, when we ask whether green or red is ever the same green or red when it is instantiated in a different object. That is to say, whether greenness or redness really exist outside the abstract operations in which we invoke them. Or conversely, whether, a, 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 whether a, an apple or a garden shed could possibly exist without some color or other to augment them chromatically. Um, in other words, do propertyless objects exist? Do objectless properties exist? In novels, we might ask the same kinds of questions of character traits, for example, shyness or violence or criminality, or the qualities of a dialogue such as politeness or sarcasm. Can we ever be certain of the sameness or the consistency or the identity of such qualities? And that, I think, leads me to post-fiction, the second term you asked about. Because in my understanding, uh, at least, post-fiction is a, is a logic of the collapse of the ideology of instantiation. So I'm reluctant to think of post-fiction as a genre. I, I really think of it as a, as a historical moment that we're in. And it's a historical moment in which our faith in the intactness of instantiation relations is in the process of disintegrating. Perhaps, for example, we're no longer certain that as subjects we inhabit or embody certain universal qualities, certain gender identities, for example, certain racial uh, identities. Perhaps we don't necessarily identify with the implications of our patterns of consumption. Uh, perhaps social or character qualities such as sanity or cleverness or wealth or innocence, perhaps those character qualities no longer seem even leg legitimate or, or credible or applicable to ourselves or anybody else. Perhaps we can no longer stomach novels or, or films or television series for that matter that seem to imply those things as givens or as explanations for anything. So I define post-fiction as a, as a name for any work that helps us to think outside the logic of instantiation. Because such thought is by definition non-anchored, not even non-subjective, we could say, and, and it doesn't follow rules of perspective. And those rules of perspective are themselves deeply historical, as we all know. They emerged in Europe, you know, more or less in the Italian Renaissance. But a further implication of my uh, analysis is that any such work of post-fiction has its primary model in the novel, since novels always contain within them elements that escape explanation in terms of instantiation principles. 
And um, so let me just very briefly kind of touch on the third, the third um, term that you uh, asked me about, which is disconnection. And I can in a way be much briefer uh, about this because disconnection is not exactly a technical term in my analysis. It's a kind of temporary name uh, for that principle of escape uh, uh, that the novel always inhabits. You know, it's a name for the, the sort of absolute difference that, that may underlie our narratives of connection or our narratives of identity or historical explanation. So in a way, one of the things that I'm very alert to in all the works of fiction I uh, I pay attention to is moments when when actually disconnection rather than connection seems to be the operative um, term, uh, really where something fails to happen in, in, in a place where we were expecting something to happen. And those, I think, are very um, important moments, particularly in, in contemporary uh, fiction. Right. Um, so you cite Lucas's idea that irony is the formal manifestation of the novel's objectivity. And then you introduce instantiation and instantiation relation. Is instantiation the formal manifestation of the novel's subjectivity? Yes, this sort of gets to um, uh, something quite interesting. I mean, you, yes, you 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 um, you touch on this this question of irony. I, I think it's a really an, an important question and quite complex because irony we often think of as something very radical in the novel. Um, but in fact, Lukash is aware and really establishes that the fact that irony is the classic mechanism of the novel. It is really how the novel communicates. Um, uh, certainly, this is how he understands the novel to work in the theory of the novel. And I think he's, he's basically right. You know, the novel, in the, even in its classic form, does not say what it's doing. But nevertheless, we as readers and the novel itself know what it is doing and what it is saying. And that is the key to what Lukash will later call realism. Irony is not something, you know, radical or destabilizing in the novel. It is a formal ideological and aesthetic structure. And its greatest craftsmen are, you know, novelists as as um, established in the novelistic tradition as Balzac and Tolstoy. Such novelists, you know, they conjure a world out of which an entire body of meaning sort of seeps without their narrators or characters having to specify it. You know, that's how the realist novel works. But in order for it to work, a certain ontological structure must also be in place. The record, And we could talk about that ontological structure in terms of the recognizability of certain tropes and images. You know, when we see an individual struggling with an existential predicament uh, in a novel, you know, loving somebody who is not his or her partner, or discovering that the people one assumed were ones were biological parents are in fact not, you know, we we sort of assume we recognize such stru- structures as translatable into our own life and our own circumstances. The assumption is that fictional worlds are mappable more or less onto real worlds. That recognizability is what I call instantiation. So, the novel instantiates questions and situations that confront us in life, meaning that it addresses them and perhaps it resolves them at a smaller, more manageable scale. But in our, in our own period, uh, I argue, that relation, 
the instantiation relation is no longer intact as a governing assumption of the works that are that that we that we often read. In fact, it is put into question repeatedly. Uh, our our literature is post-fictional, not because it's autobiographical, not because it's truth-telling, but because the premises of fiction no longer apply in quite the same way. Post-fiction is not you know non-fiction. It's a distinct and new formation. So, so that a work by a writer like J.M. Kutzia, uh, his his novel from two thousand three, Elizabeth Costello, is a very you know important work for my um, analysis. But but if we if we read that work as a as a work that is trying to convey ideas, the the ideas of its protagonist, ideas about um, vegetarianism, ideas about um, the um, um, the future of the humanities, the idea, the ideas about evil and the way that evil operates in the novel. Um, if we read that novel as a work that is trying to convey those ideas, uh, or an essayistic book, we simply misunderstand it. Because in fact, what is going on in that novel is that the, the protagonist, who happens to be a well-known author named Elizabeth Costello, um, you know, she, she is indeed giving lectures about certain ideas, but what the novel is trying to do is to dramatize the impossibility of transferring the ideas and thoughts of fictional characters to non-fictional readers. The ideas in question become simply hollow and implausible in the, in the process, however hard the author tries to make them convincing. And Kutzia really tries hard to make those ideas convincing, plausible, coherent. They're often ideas that he shares. They're often ideas that he's written about elsewhere. And yet the real agenda of that book, I think, is is to, in fact, as I was saying earlier, to sort of establish the, the impossibility of those ideas, really connecting with readers in, an, in a plausible and convincing way, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, thank you. So now I'm just going to move to the title of the book itself. What is free indirect and how do we understand free indirect and its relationship to novel through Deleuze and his thoughts on cinema? Yes. Well, um, again, crucial question. Thank you, Ikra. So <clears throat> the title of the book, Free Indirect, really takes its name from a, te- a technical term in narratology, uh, which is known as free indirect discourse. And free and direct discourse describes a way of presenting the thoughts of a character without specifying grammatically that it is the character who is thinking. So a very famous example is the opening line of James Joyce's story, The Dead, which goes like this. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. We're not told that this is Lily's version of her experience, but the vernacular expression run off her feet together with the malapropism of the word literally, tells us that it is so. This is Lily's version of events, not that of some omniscient narrator. But what I find really fascinating about the use of free and direct discourse, including in this example, is the absence of a grammatical marker. And what that absence tells us is that literature is a highly complex use of language. What is going on is always far in excess of what we read on the page. Now, I mean, we've known this for a long time, but using the term free and direct discourse in a critical context, which it really is often, uh, that use almost always involves identifying who the thought or speech in question belongs to. 
And I think that doing so misses something essential about the novel, which is that the thought in question isn't always identifiable. And furthermore, maybe there is something in that grammatical absence that is important that we, that we should pay attention to. In this regard, and then this gets to the second part of your question, the novel, I, I think, is far closer to cinema than has really been acknowledged. If you think about the viewpoint of the camera, for example, there is a proliferation of information in, in every cinematic shot, including the soundtrack. And we, uh, and we can't really attribute that, uh, every piece of that information, to any particular person. Deleuze's work on, on cinema was highly attuned to that. So he would talk of what he called, for, quote, a free, indirect quality to the cinematic image. And Deleuze would also talk about this as a novelistic quality to cinema. Now, he used that term in passing. It's easily ignorable. It has been completely ignored, in fact. But I argue that it's not, we shouldn't, you know, ignore it. It's not an offhand remark. It's actually an absolutely correct observation. Like cinema, there is a free, indirect quality to the novel in which what is happening is simply unattributable to anyone, uh, to any character or narrator. And not only that, but there is a thinking in the novel that cannot be inhabited subjectively. And that it's that quality of thinking that uh, my book is really about. Great. Um, you also talk about spatiotemporality in your book. How do you compare ideas about spatiotemporality in Bakhtin, Anderson, and Michel Foucault? Also, you use James Kelman and Patrick Modiano's work as examples just to discuss Foucault's discontinuous systematicities. Could you also please talk a little bit about that? Yes, thank you, Ikra. I'd, lo- I'd love to. Um, so yes, these, these three figures are all in conversation in, in a particular chapter of the book. So um, so yeah, I'll, I'll sort of try to unfold this a little bit. Um, one of um, Mikhail Bakhtin, the, I mean, the great Soviet-era Russian um, literary critic, one of his great inventions is the concept of the chronotope, as he calls it. And that's, that's Bakhtin's name for, for how novelistic works establish a unity of space and time as the basis for the unfolding of their stories. The, so that's, uh, that the, the, the chronotope is really the first important form or frame that a, an author erects around a narrative. You know, the story takes place in a space and a time, and that space and that time are precisely mappable onto each other. And they're, in a way, held in place by the view of the narrator. So, you know, one of the very vivid images he offers is a, is a two people walking walking along a road. Um, that road operates as soon as you uh, uh, place that road in in a novel. That that road exists in both space and also time. It unfolds the uh, the um, events that will that will take place on the road will unfold both spatially and and, and, and temporally. So. In a novel, this is a you know this is a uh, a principle that that is always is always uh, evident. A movement in space is always a movement in time. Space and time are regular, and they are mutually compatible. And this unity is one of the achievements of the novel. It's really a condition of the novel's coming into exi- its existence. But Bakhtin's also aware that it's a simplification. In reality. Space and time do not map onto each other in, in, in quite this way. Spatial, spatio-temporal unity is an abstraction, a, a spatialization of time and a temporalization of space. 
very similar to this um, is Benedict Anderson's idea of the way that the novel imagines community. And, I, I, you know, Anderson is a, a brilliant critic of the same stature as Bakhtin, who, whose great invention is really this, this concept of an imagined community. And in particular, the idea that this imagined community is spatio-temporal. So all over, the, all over the nation that we ourselves are part of, you know, we imagine other people going about their days in more or less the same way that we are and at more or less the same time that, that, we, that we do. They eat their breakfast just as we're eating our breakfast and opening our newspaper just as we're opening our newspaper and reading the news, the same news that we ourselves are reading about in our, in our newspaper. And when we read a novel, uh, according to Anderson, novels do that imagining for us. So yeah, he has this very vivid example. You know, when you have the word meanwhile in a narrative, meanwhile in another part of the city, as soon as you have the word meanwhile, you have the possibility of an imagined community. Two characters or two groups of characters who may not know each other, but whose activities are related to each other in space and, and time. So Anderson and Bakhtin, I think, are both thinking very similarly about about spatio-temporal unity. And the great figure of um, Michel Foucault, um, uh, I think, complicates that. And uh, one of Foucault's great inventions, or uh, one of them at least, one of his inventions is, is to, is that he, or one of his propositions, I should say, is that he really wants to, a way to conceptualize the very fact that these operations are invented or artificial. Uh, and he wants to claim that the novel of the future, well, he doesn't talk, talk much about the novel, but he wants to claim that the thought of the future might involve not a sort of systematization of the continuity of space and time, but a systematization of their discontinuity. In other words, he wants to represent space and time or a way of representing space and time that no longer presupposes their unity. Now, Foucault didn't write much about cinema, and in fact, he didn't write much about novels either. But in that proposition, he was certainly responding to certain experiments in the work of writers like Jorge Luis Borges, the great Argentinian writer, or Samuel Beckett, uh, the French, uh, Irish French writer, whose fiction, uh, fictions often play with a sort of opacity of the concepts of space and time. And uh, after Foucault, really Deleuze is the figure who develops this proposition in the context of cinema, I think influenced by Foucault. Because cinema materializes both space and time, because it, it presents them as material entities, uh, we feel spatial movement we feel time in the in the context of cinema cinema also materializes their possibility of disconnection and if we think about it if we think about the very technical process of cinema uh spatial spatio-temporal unity is revealed as artificial by the very artifice with which a soundtrack is paired with the visual image so so Deleuze is in, is, is very important in, in that in that regard I'll just you know, say something, uh, go back to Bakhtin, because before both Foucault and Deleuze, and Deleuze, Bakhtin, even in formulating the idea of the chronotope, he is aware that one special author departs from chronotopic formations as they are conventionally practiced. 
and that author is Dostoevsky. And the way that Dostoevsky avoids the artificiality of the chronotope is by avoiding the perspective of the author or the narrator who can see everything. In Dostoevsky, we're in the mind of a character or characters, and that mind is not a kind of synthetic one. That that mind never stands transcendentally to his characters. It always moves through time and space, really without synthesizing them as a sort of mathematically or or, or calculable whole. Um, so, so that um, insight into the work of Dostoevsky is really, really um, important for Bakhtin. Um, I'll just say something very briefly about the two writers that you mentioned, James Kelman and um, Patrick Modiano. Um, uh, Kelman is a Scottish, you know, they're both contemporary writers, they're both living, they're both writing still. Um, and they both enter into my own account of how the contemporary novel has managed to achieve something like Foucault's systematized discontinuity. Kelman does this by, like Dostoevsky, completely avoiding any third-person omniscient perspective that would endorse or, or even would ironize the perspective of his characters. Uh, his novel um, from 1994, an incredible novel that won the Booker Prize then, it's called How Late It Was, How Late. In that novel, we are in the mind of the hero, uh, whose name is Sammy, from the outset uh, and right up until the end of the novel. You know, there's no image, there's no term or concept or idea that is that Sammy has that is endorsed by the text, even down to the sort of visceral experience of Sammy's blindness. So what, what Kelman does is he takes his narration so close to the perspective of his protagonist as to completely, you know, collapse into it. Modiano's works work slightly differently. Um, so, so Modiano's uh, narrators are all versions of Modiano himself, and they're all attempting to reconstruct historical connections uh, and connections that are somehow elusive to them. And those connections often have, have something to do with the troubling history of France during the Second World War and the question of French collaboration with the Nazi regime. Uh, but... Modiano's works are not works of successful reconstruction. They all end in uncertainty. And the extraordinary work by Modiano that I write about is a novel entitled uh, Dora Bruder, which is a, about a, an attempt to uncover the fate of a schoolgirl who disappeared in Paris in June 1942. And her name subsequently appears among the lists of Jews deport, deported to Auschwitz uh, just three months later. And what is really emotionally powerful about Modiano's work is not what he uncovers, but that he uncovers so little about what happened during those missing three months, or indeed about what happened afterwards. And, you know, it's this failure of discovery that creates a new form of novelistic connection, precisely out of the failure of, of connection in my analysis. Sorry about that very long answer. No, that, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for um, giving us a detailed answer to that. <laughs> um, so you also mentioned that the question of the meaning or value of a literary work is harder to answer in our era. How or why so? Yes. Um, well, the, the, I'll try to um, speak a little bit, a bit more briefly. Um, the The case I try to make in free and direct is is that the the enigmatic quality of literary meaning in our time. That enigmatic quality is itself a thought 
and it's a thought of supreme importance and it and the supreme importance of it in a way is part of um uh, uh, is part of its um of its uh, of the i mean the enigmatic quality is, is is precisely what is so important about it and perhaps we could talk about it as the great discovery of the literature of our period that discovery might almost be called a critical insight or or a you know or we could almost think of it as a gesture of liberation from the dominant narratives the dominant ideological narratives of our time i i talked earlier of the subject centered nature of our world and perhaps i'd like to think um the novel can help us det- detach from that ideology of subject centeredness so that's really why i think the both the meaning of a work is harder to answer and also why that difficulty is really important. Right. And with that, we move on to the last question that I have for you, which is, so in your opinion, how should readers or literary critics use or approach or read this book? It's a lovely question, Ikra. Uh, I, I mean, I, I had not... Um, you know that that idea of how how the reader how readers should encounter a book is really a nice thing to think about and um i think i would like readers to think about to read this book as a way to understand or think about the ways in which our world by which i mean our own intellectual operations the questions we ask about ourselves and our relationships all our habits of thought i mean the way in which these different dimensions of our world are actually formed by novelistic conventions, even if we're not huge novel readers. And if we are readers of novels, especially contemporary novels, perhaps this book will help readers to think about how the novel, even as it forms those habits of thought, also frees us from them. That there exists in every novel in a way that is especially visible in contemporary fiction, an alternative strain of thought that has the potential to help us to think about how limiting and constrict and constricting such conventions actually are. So I, I, I would like it to be um, to be a kind of um, a book that is liberating in a certain sense, and 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 also that identifies ideological formations that are that are very much in operation in our world politically. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for this book. It's been so wonderful to talk to you about it. I am Ikrash Gupta Chima, your host for New Books Network. Now go get your copy of Free Indirect, the novel in a post-fictional age, published by Columbia University Press. Happy reading. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.